Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. So I'm in my office the other day, this <laughs> happens more than less, and somebody comes in and first thing I notice is they're sneezing all over the place, they have the sniffles, what we used to call the sniffles, uh, <laughs> And the first thought in my mind is, okay, maybe allergies. We have a lot of that in our area. You might in yours where you live geographically, the part of the world you live in. And then I thought, well, we also have a lot of things like colds and flus, and particularly depending on the time of the year as well. Being more inside than outside, more exposure being inside to communicable diseases uh, such as colds and flus. Uh, All that goes through my mind. (laughs) And all of it like that in a split second. But even quicker than that, I said to myself, where's your mask? Now, I don't know that I would have said that five years ago. Uh, I might have thought five years ago, you probably shouldn't come into the office if you're sniffling and you're sneezing. Uh, We don't do mandatory temperature checks at my office. Um, We don't even require at this particular moment in time masks. But as you know, when you talk about checking temperature and wearing masks... Uh, All of us, probably universally, no matter what part of the world we live in, no matter geographically where we might reside, are going to think of COVID, COVID COVID-19. And I thought to myself, okay, I remember that. And that wasn't very pleasant. And then it makes me think, I remember that. And if somebody came in and they were sniffling, sneezing, coughing had a temperature, we sent them home. And and they had to stay at home until they either got a COVID test or had to have a COVID test to get back in. Or I guess in some ways they proved that they did have COVID. Uh, And then they'd show back up and who knows. In in my part of the world, we never got back to or never got around to, that's what I want to say it, uh, vaccine passports or things such as that. So it was still mostly a matter of observation. And uh, if you measured anything, it was temperature. And we were on top of that. And we were all encouraged to wear a mask. So I thought, where's your mask? And I was going to say something about it, but I didn't. Because we're again not there at this particular moment. I didn't send them home. (laughs) I thought about... Time before the last three, four, five years, <laughs> last three years, 19, 20, 21, it seems like gone on forever, four years, now going on five. Was there a time before COVID? Was there a time before masks? Was there a time when we knew somebody had a cold, but it didn't scare us to death? It seemed like there might have been for me. And so we went ahead and completed the session uh, the person I commented, uh, are you feeling well? And the person said, oh yeah, I have allergies. I've got the sniffles. And I said, okay. 
<laughs> I did social distance. Uh, but we finished the session and everything turned out well. <laughs> At least in the sense that I didn't pick up anything. And I guess they just had the sniffles. Uh, I haven't spoken to them since, but I haven't heard otherwise. Psychology Today, December of 2022, Health Supplemental Science section, uh, November, December 2022. How your social life affects your gut, your environment, and social circle are critical importance are critically important in shaping your microbiome by Hera Estroff Morano. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last decade, you know by now that the gut plays a surprisingly large role in physical and mental health, not just by breaking food down into component nutrients to sustain mind and body, but also by conscripting resident bacteria, said to number about 100 trillion to act as auxiliary organs deploying their own metabolic processes to influence our every function. Studies over the past decade or so have shown that microbes produce substances that maintain a strong intestinal wall, preventing the leakage of toxins and bacteria that once that, once at large, set off inflammation, thought to be a cause of conditions ranging from irritable bowel syndrome to neurodegenerative disorders. They also produce neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, and GABA, G-A-B-A, that communicate directly with the brain. It's just the early stages of understanding the magnitude of the gut's role in health. For example, there's evidence that some of the substances, namely short-chain fatty acids or FCSCFAs, produced by certain groups of bacteria, boost the efficacy of cancer immunotherapy. A diet that promotes the abundance of such bugs, largely plant-based, may in the future become a standard part of cancer care. But SCFAs have a much larger portfolio. The product of bacterial fermentation of fiber in the lower intestine, they also influence brain function, regulating appetite, energy balance, and mood states. A dearth of SCFAs is implicated in depression and anxiety. There are hundreds of bacterial species in the gut. Bacterial diversity is a good thing, a general contributor to and marker of good health. But exactly what does a healthy gut look like? Studies indicate that gut composition varies by many factors. (laughs) The bugs in your knobby. (laughs) One of the most important, it turns out, is who you currently live with. Researchers studying large numbers of individuals of traceable ancestry in different populations have come to the same conclusion. Diet and genetic heritage are known to affect the microbiome. But social relationships shape it the most, or shape it most, especially sustained, close marital partnerships. The Dutch Microbiome Project, which characterized gut microbes in 8,208 individuals belonging to three generations, finds that the heritability of gut microbes 
is at most 1.9%. Reporting recently in the journal Nature, the research team observed much greater similarity among the microbiomes of genetically unrelated individuals sharing a household than among relatives who do not share households including identical twins whose living situations diverge in adulthood. Only a small proportion of organisms have high heritability, among them <laughs> Bifidobacterium longum, which I'm sure is Latin, a multifunctional microbe that colonizes the intestinal tract early in infancy to digest the sugars and breast milk and bolster immunity. The first few years of life are crucial for microbiome development and childhood is indeed linked to the adult microbiome. But it's the childhood living environment that is most associated with the adult microbiome. Growing up in a rural environment brings increases in various bacteria, among them... <laughs> Bio, excuse me, bifidobacterium, <laughs> as in bifidobacterium, bifidobacterium longum, species linked to general health and decreases in bugs that are opportunistically pathogenic. Growing up with pets also has a positive effect on the microbiome, while early exposure to air pollution notably car exhaust, and passive exposure to cigarette smoke have durably negative effects. The makeup of the microbiome is highly individualistic, although two large classes of organisms, Bacteriodetes and Firmicutes, make up more than 90% of the total. The ratio serves as a general indicator of health, but shifts in the balance Dysbiosis can negatively affect health. Metabolic conditions and cardiovascular diseases, among other disorders, are linked to increases in the proportion of firmicutus, while inflammatory bowel disease is linked to a low proportion of firmicutus, or T's. All around, researchers say, environment dominates our heritability and shaping the microbiome. And it does so throughout life. The impact of intimacy. Despite large individual variations in adult microbiome composition, those who live closely together come to have similar microbes within. The Dutch researchers found that nearly 50% of microbiome types were significantly affected by cohabitation. In general, the microbiomes of all types of cohabitors, including parents and children and siblings, were more similar than those of participants living separately, no matter their relatedness. But married couples who report having a close, loving relationship have the most similarity, says, say Israeli researchers, also in nature. Some of the microbiome similarity, of course, comes from shared diet and shared environmental exposures. But evidence of microbiome sharing, especially of rare species, suggests mutual colonization through human interactions. And that puts a spotlight on acts of intimacy, including 
kissing. The salivary microbiome influences the gut microbiome. Not only are the microbiomes of cohabitating spouses more similar to each other, they also are more similarly diverse. There is greater a greater richness of species than in unmarried, non-cohabitating individuals. Cohabitation, cohabitation is not just a matter of social enrichment. There's biological enrichment as well. Cohabitation brings an invasion of new microbial species to the less diverse microbiome of those who have previously lived alone. Scientists have known for decades that social relationships, especially marriage, powerfully affect health. In fact, social isolation compromises health at least as much as smoking, bringing significant increases in all-cause mortality. The decades of research documenting the benefits of marriage and well-being suggest that in addition to the positive effect of psychosocial factors, the gut microbiome may be linking human relationships and health. Despite the commanding influence of a close cohabitating relationship, the microbiome can be diversified by diet, especially one rich in plant fiber. It can be influenced by behavior such as farming and gardening and exercise. It's modifiable by environment, green space and pollutants around you. It can also be altered by direct additions of specific species of bacteria delivered in consumable probiotics or in that ultimate feat of reverse engineering by fecal transplant. There are probiotic formulations now marketed for digestive health, others aimed at immune health, and still others for boosting mood. Now that it's clear that social relations play the largest role in the makeup of microbiomes, can probiotics for singles be far behind? Now, there's obviously all sorts of benefits and liabilities to any of those possible ways to do as the article suggests. Appreciate how your social life affects your gut or in that way to do something good for your gut in terms of microbiome. But at the same time, my preference would probably be rather than any of the others, maybe highest order, doing that socially. And as far as microbiomes are considered, which I don't consider them much, and that's the beauty of an article like this, right? This would be something that you probably would not talk about in more general conversation, and certainly why I try to bring you the podcast so that we could talk about such things as these, and with that, the hope that we can learn together how important Biochemistry is, physiology even is, when it comes to psychological matters. Talks about the article, that is, depression and anxiety and serotonin and dopamine. And once again, the social benefits, which seems much more preferable to me than fecal transplant. But who am I? 
And even as the article finishes with a somewhat rhetorical question, now that it's clear that social relations play the largest role in the makeup of microbiome, can probiotics for singles be far behind? I guess it presupposes that some might choose a life of being not only single, but somewhat socially isolated. So what has this got to do with colds and flus, sniffles, temperature checks, COVID, and this patient that came to see me the other day that I shared, certainly not in some sort of cohabitation dimension, at least not in the same sort of way as as the article put it. I love how it's put. Communal? Mutual colonization through human interactions. <laughs> and I guess cohabitation being an aspect of that, probably the therapy s- circumstance, situation, is probably also somewhat along that line. Um, so to grocery stores, and <laughs> common workspace, and Elevators and all those places that you can pick up all kinds of things just by breathing the air. Not to mention the residuals of human contact in whatever shape and form with inanimate and animate objects that you carry, you could have common interaction with, interact in some sort of dimension with. So when you start to go there, there's a lot of stuff that isn't on the radar. And though it's interesting in context of a podcast such as this, uh, it may be of at least general interest sufficient to suggest isolation, masking up, avoiding situations. And again, as the article asks the rhetorical, rhetorical question, some might choose to be somewhat Isolated in some sort of manner or dimension, probiotics for singles. It does seem, though, that we should begin to appreciate, though we've been sent a message, appropriately so, of the risks and dangers our awareness has been elevated over the last four or five years of the great risk of such things as not only colds and flus, which we've always known about, but as I was confessing at the beginning of the podcast, it never concerned me sufficient, certainly never killed me, so I never knew many that died, although people do die of the flu. I want to be respectful of that. Most of them have health concerns, even as with COVID. They have health concerns that put them at higher risk. And however we did or didn't handle the pandemic, the COVID, however we might appraise how it was handled. Some think it was handled wonderfully and correctly, and others might think just the opposite. It does heighten our awareness to the fact there's a lot of things such as that that are going on that maybe in some way we've become desensitized to over the generations, but maybe in some way, even as the article suggests, there's been positives that's gone on as well for not masking. (laughs) Now certainly there's plagues and such in history that you just didn't want to get around and needed to avoid, and maybe COVID could have been that. 
and we should have been cautionary. Uh, but it does not mean, though, simply because our awareness has been elevated to such the extent that masking up, now that we're post-COVID, and we do understand and realize the inherent risks and dangers, and that it's not something that, as with the influenza virus back in, I guess that was the turn of the century, 1900s, could have killed or would have killed masses uh, without some sort of treatment, which we now have, that mitigates that effect. We can maybe put COVID in that same sort of category, cautionary, be careful, but even so, for most of us, we don't suffer the flu to the point of death. We feel like we're going to die. It, for those who, again, who have health problems, are at greater risk, it could mean that, and so flu shots are good, and thank goodness we have uh, care, medicines that we can take that mitigates the uh, effect to the extent that we're not as much risk of dying or death. But let's not forget about the preventative sort of aspects of social encounters, going maskless, <laughs> even continue to share common space with individuals, not becoming too isolated. And though, once again, the article speaks to mostly that most intimate of social situations, cohabitation, I think that we could probably say outside of cohabitation, and even during the pandemic, cohabitation was somewhat discouraged. People who had COVID were not able to be around family. And once more, for good reasons, I understand that fully and would not discount that in any way. But I want to say, now that we know, maybe we need to be careful because, as I mentioned also at the beginning of the podcast, I can, at times, seemingly so, not remember as well the world pre-COVID. And what was that like? Humans have survived and adapted. And... Nothing so far has created mass extinction, at least in that way. And it's true. Maybe it's because it's been more organic. (laughs) Plants, animals, and social interactions. And maybe to some extent, exposure is not altogether bad. We hear about herd immunity. It's, again, one of those sort of rally cries. I don't want to go too far into that, but that might be an example of what I'm trying to capture. But the ecosystem, the ecology of all of that, as one affects the other, whatever plant, animal, whatever sort of Interaction, you're looking at as much anything, microbes, microbiomes, <laughs> that o- might occupy the ecosystem external and internally. Those that, because they are so obviously out there, external, um, maybe even more so perceivable, measurable, <laughs> all the way to those that we can't see and perceive, that we know now, more than ever before seemingly, are there, it could cause you to become somewhat overreactive. 
I don't want to say it's neurotic. I don't want to say that fear is the source or the basis, but we need to be careful because that really is what psychologically we put, I guess, most fear-based sort of psychological problems in a category of neuroses, uh, over-excitement of norepinephrine and adrenaline, emotional thinking, uh, not that it's without cause or not that it would not be without some good reason or some factor. But once that fear kicks in, should we determine that the risk is not as great as it seemed at the time, once we're more understanding of it, once we have, again, treatments, ways to identify (laughs) better than everybody get a temperature check and everybody wear a mask, which was I know it sounds, my point is, it was a bit crude. I know it sounds crude. It was a bit crude. But it was purposeful. That's all we knew. Now we know more. And now we're a bit more sophisticated. And now we understand the extent of it. And that it didn't kill us all, even though it was, again, global. Maybe we need to be careful not to overreact. Now, I didn't when the patient came in. Although there was a part of me that wanted to overreact. There was a part of me that used all my knowledge base from the last four or five years, even somewhat preclusive of my remembering all my lifetime prior to the last four or five years. And I had to, in a moment, make an assessment. And I chose the lesser intrusive I guess, remedy or at least precautionary measure. could be a remedy. does its job. Social distancing. (laughs) And and I didn't shake hands. And uh, with that, they were polite enough to cover their mouth whenever they sneezed or as they sniffled and they blew their nose, they deposited the Kleenex or the tissue in the trash can. All of those good hygiene sanitary measures and means. But I could become neurotic. I become, could become worrisome. The, the incredible thing about neuroses is that the answer in that same sort of crude, general, global way is stay away from everything. It becomes a bit of, to an extreme, I suppose. Norepinephrine and adrenaline this idea of fear, this idea of approach avoidance, this idea of fight or flight could lead you to just isolate completely. Now you can say, well, that's okay because I got family. Yeah, but (laughs) in that same sort of way though, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Circumstance, situation being unique as they are. But even so, uh, maybe community outside of family, though the article does not highlight that so much, maybe it is beneficial. And to the extent or degree that not only when it comes to the physiology, the microbiome, but maybe too when it comes to the psychosocial factors, because though the article was more about the physiology, and as I stumbled over all of those words, because I don't study that, and we don't use that terminology as much, and though I took a couple of courses in Latin when I was uh, 
in high school, I don't remember how to pronounce all those words. But from a psychosocial standpoint, we already know isolation is not good. Now, is that extension of physiology? Is that an extension of all this biochemistry? Is that extension of the common dimension? All of us are commonly related in some basic elemental, literally so, way, yeah. (laughs) We're all of the same composition. We just have taken a different shape and form. So you can't separate us, but isn't that ecology, and isn't that natural selection, and isn't that organicity, and maybe it is unique, and some have mitigating sort of factors as health and wellness, and have good microbiomes, and all kinds of other genetic things that predispose them to be a little healthier, but I think in that sort of way, even don't be isolated. Diversity is good, isn't it? Not only in psychosocial terms, but in terms of heredity and heritability, which the article mentions. But anytime you're isolated, whether it is physically speaking for physical cause and reason, communicable diseases, or whether it is simply because of some sort of neuroticism or hypervigilance, or even so, as that might go to that extreme, paranoia. It's not good. So you've got to balance that out. Now, sometimes you wear masks and sometimes you don't. And we don't want to affect, infect, and affect others in negative ways. And if we know we are, we should politely and respectfully, if we are going to have an interaction, be fully disclosing of whatever we know. And if folks want you to keep your social distance, or for physical reasons, or for psychological reasons, do so. I'm okay with social distancing. I think as a general rule of practice, anything closer than six foot is probably in violating, in violation of, or potentially violating personal space. I don't do that, either for emotional, psychological reasons, or as we're speaking of, or as the podcast seems to be turned today, toward more the disease model of communicating or sharing colds, flus, and things such as COVID. But I don't want to be scared of people. And I don't want to be avoidant. And my family needs me. And if I isolate too much, then it's not good for me. We know that from psychological study and research. Just like we know that from such articles and reports such as this one I read today in Psychology Today, on a physical level. But I do think as much as we've been warned, and rightfully so, there was alarm, and rightfully rightfully so, we took some really crude growths, as in big sort of precautionary measures. We don't want to lose sight of all of these things that happened pre-COVID, Or allow the fear of that in a trauma sort of way to alter our social interactions. If we are all about diversity, if we're all about removing boundaries and barriers, and if we're open to the world, then let's be open to the world and understand if that's the scientific basis of it, and that's your selling point, so to speak, then you need to live that way. 
But that means all of us. It does not mean certain groups and does not mean people who might in some sort of way say one thing and do something else. We call that reaction formation when it comes to defense mechanisms. Uh, Albeit because it's a defense mechanism, we kind of give people a bit of grace for that. A little bit of leeway, they're not aware. But once somebody calls your awareness the fact that if you say you like diversity, cultural, ethnic, (laughs) if you say the world should be as one, you say there should be no barriers, boundaries that keep people out, except this idea of courtesy for the sake of them, not us, then you need to let them live where you live. You need to go to the same stores. You need to share the same common space. You need to take them into your home, regardless of where you live or who you are. It shouldn't be such that some individuals are excluded that and others exposed to that based on anything but this highest order of ethics consideration. And from a psychology standpoint, I would never, as a psychologist, psychological counselor, I would never want anybody who came to see me to think that I was not going to treat them the same way as I treated anybody else. That I was going to be any more withdrawn or denying of services or assistance or being as relatable, personally involved, (laughs) I still shake hands. I'm not shaking hands as much as I did before. So it tells me I am somewhat still influenced by all of this. I think others don't want to shake my hand. I think they're still influenced. But I'm not going to deny my hand if a handshake is appropriate, culturally or otherwise, simply because I... Don't believe you're healthy or I think you're sick. Now, I may say, you know, you sound pretty sick there. Would you mind if I don't shake your hand or get too close? Or as much as we all live by this highest of ethics and character, we would want to do that for one another. But shouldn't we then also put our money where our mouth is? Should we not also then do the same thing for those people who are not of same social affluence, social status. Why should anybody then think they're deserving of more than anybody else if we're going to live by that standard alone? Which I'm not against that, if that were to be the case. What I don't think that I'm probably for, and hopefully I'm making a good case for on the podcast, is don't tell me one thing and then do something different. If you're going to subject me to that, and I do that voluntarily, I subject myself to that same standard, as I'm believing most of those who are listening to the podcast right now would, then at the same time, I'm not going to want to be isolated. I don't want to be discriminated against. I don't want to be put somewhere So that I don't have equal access, opportunity to be with you. I want to come in your neighborhood. (laughs) I might even want to come knock on your door and come in your house. Whatever house it is. Whatever neighborhood it is. Don't tell me that boundaries are bad and then 
put a wall around your house or a fence around your house. Security cameras. I, I, I'm not trying to go to the extreme, and I certainly don't want to sound absurd, but I think, again, somewhere between those two points is probably appropriate. But if we knowingly then commit acts of hypocrisy, then, then we're guilty of that. And we should acknowledge that. But at the same time, we should realize there's some prudence that we have to take into consideration. So far, I've never turned anyone away because they had the sniffles or a cold or the flu. (laughs) And I'm not inclined to mask up. That's a risk I'm willing to take, and I trust in my autoimmune system. I trust in my microbiomes. I trust in my genetics. I trust in the fact that I'm not high risk, that, that I've found empirically over the course of my life. I'm a pretty healthy person, and I do all those things that otherwise would be. I exercise, do those kind of things that would be try to eat good diet, try to stay away from processed foods, all of those things that the article mentions. But at the same time, though, if I was high risk, I think I might tell you that. I'm so sorry. I can't shake your hand because I have this problem. And would you be so kind as to forgive me? It's not about you. It's just protective. But if I'm going to say that, would you not also then, as I might be saying it to you or someone else, would they also not then likewise reciprocate and say, oh, I understand fully. But just to tell me I can't come visit you because you don't like the idea that somehow I might be carrying... That's prejudice. I don't know that it's racist. It might be tied to particular heritage. It might be tied to a particular region of the world we're from. But in the very least, it's prejudicial, which is very great. That's really what I think we need to be careful of. But even with the prejudices... They could be stereotypes, sort of like I was mentioning earlier with neuroticism. I might have an idea in my mind of what evil looks like simply because I've encountered it in this shape and form. But I've mistaken the shape and form to be associated with the evil. That's probably something like the gross, crude sort of dimension of mask wearing and temperature checking. Or people who are unvaccinated, even though we now know there is such a thing as natural immunity or herd immunity that can be developed and can be just as positive and in the sense of protective as would be any otherwise vaccination even. As much then all those other mitigating factors. I've never had a flu shot. <laughs> I still get the flu as do those that get flu shots. But I'm pretty healthy, and I've waited out, and I've made that determination. I think that's okay. But if it seems to seem prejudicial, then let's just apologize and talk about it, apologize for maybe what differences we might have. But it shouldn't be prejudice based on irrational things, simply associations. But that's how we're wired humanly, is just to make associations. When you're threatened to the extent of dying, as with COVID, and you don't know what's going on in that gross sort of way, that sort of way where we look at everything in such really simplistic, that's prejudice. (laughs) It's time to get over it, though. Uh, Crude. 
we need to move past that. Maybe we should say, depending on the circumstance situation, most of us are going to have that reaction until we sort it out. And maybe we should also say lack of experience and exposure at times does put us at liability because this is novel, this is new, and we really don't know. And we've got that fear thing going on. Maybe I need to be a little bit sensitive here. Something might be happening. Only to find out, I'm sure, that most people are not evil. But there is evil. Maybe it's the COVID. (laughs) Maybe it's the flu. Maybe it's somebody who would kill me. Uh, Maybe it's an animal. Maybe they're not. But on the front end of it, I have to be that crude or that gross in my determination or decision making. But also, hopefully, once the immediate threat is removed, I get a chance to step back and evaluate and decide which is really part of that and what really isn't. What factors play into it, what factors don't. But that's also kind of part of the problem because when it's that threatening and it's that traumatizing, people tend to, on a psychological basis, compartmentalize, which means they put it in a box or in a closet, which then they do not want to ever open the lid or open the door because it's been so, but we have to, so traumatizing, so scary, so frightening. That's where it can psychopathology comes from. And as much as, again, we need this exposure on a physical basis, that we may not be as aware of it as we are on psychological terms, and now maybe, as the podcast is intention to do, raising your awareness, not of just the threat, but of the benefits of working through such things, particularly the end of not being isolated. There's something adaptive about Being with people, again, diversity, cultural, physical, (laughs) regardless. What it is that we sort of standard, we hold that too. Diversity is not bad. Creativity is not bad. But people who are afraid aren't. (laughs) They tend to wall themselves off, shut themselves off. Only hang out with individuals, so to speak, that think and believe and feel the same way they do. That's not good. And ultimately speaking, though, the article points to that cohabitation. One day, we're all going to be cohabitating because unless there is some sort of way to either selectively or maybe as through natural selection, there'll be some reduction in population, which I don't want to think that, and I do not want to be the one to pick who it is that is or isn't (laughs) in the numbers. Uh, Extinction. I hope it's not the human race, although I'm probably pretty inclined to believe we're not going to be here forever. But the idea, though, is, is that until we get there, and if it should proceed the way it has, and we continue to adapt, and as we have, and we populate all geography, all parts of the planet Earth, we're going to be cohabitating. And it seems like the distancing, 
in a more natural selection sort of way is maybe it's still six foot. Maybe you can still find six foot. But go to a larger metropolitan city or area, maybe certain circumstances, it's hard to get six foot between you and the next person. That's like living with them. But let's at least embrace it. And when folks come see me, I'm going to look at it this way. Not necessarily COVID, not necessarily, again, colds and flus and sniffling. But I'm going to look at it within that context of it's fight or flight. It's fear. We need to turn that off and sort it out. We need to stop being prejudicial. If it's some sort of trauma and there's some sort of compartmentalization or disassociation going on, we need to open the box and the door. And we need to get in there and we need to sort it out. We need to figure it out and neutralize it, scrub it, cleanse it, whatever you want to call it. Say, uh, in some sort of a way, uh, clean it up. So that it does not continue to contaminate. Then we need to do that. So that you can go about being adaptive. (laughs) So that you're not isolating. So that you can get the best out of all of these great things psychosocially. As well as physiologically. That being with people. We're social creatures. That is... The high mark as far as why we've survived. We're adaptive because we're social. Anything that puts division or separation between us is then going to run risk of long-term maladaptive, being maladaptive. And that's probably not good. And as much as I would be open and receptive to you coming to see me, at my house, <laughs> and that's much my work circumstance. I would also hope, though, that you would not isolate me or be prejudiced against me. And maybe in this case, uh, the psychology of it. If you need help, come see someone. <laughs> It'll be good for you. Maybe challenging, maybe a little overwhelming, may seem a little scary. But it's better than isolation or living in some sort of an artificial virtual world where you really don't have human contact. The greatest attribute of humanity is that we're human and we are social creatures. So, the article I thought was at least very beneficial to me in the sense that it just reminded me, not only on a microbial level, microbial level, but also on a more emotional, psychological level. I need to be around people, maskless at times, majority of the time. And if there is a threat, it needs to be a small portion of the time. And now that we've got a little bit more time to think about it and to process it, and we know a little more about what is the greater risk, maybe we can not be prejudiced against people, but... You know, we know certain factors exist. Maybe let that be a protocol of sorts. But it's not a personal thing. It should never be a, a personal thing. It should just be, well, people who with fevers probably shouldn't hang out with people who don't have fevers. But you should definitely hang out with Word with Dave Clay. And with that thought in mind, I want to wish you good health and good mental health and invite you back to our next podcast.